This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll. And today we are talking about evergreen character actor Bruce Greenwood and we have a real treat for listeners in this episode as we are joined by a guest who has worked with the performer. Uh, welcome to the show, filmmaker, screenwriter Niall Kasson. Uh, how are you today? I'm fantastic lads, thanks very much for having me on. Um, you've worked on a lot of big productions Niall as a production assistant or part of the crew, you know Deadpool, Tully, War of the Planet of the Apes, The Last Duel recently to name a few so I imagine you um, could have pitched quite a few character actors that you've worked with as contenders to for us to cover on the show and I was wondering what was it about Greenwood that made you gravitate towards him, uh, he must have left an impression. Bruce Greenwood's not, you're not gonna, he's not going to headline a movie, but like if I see his name in the credits, I'm just thinking, yeah, this, like, he doesn't make bad movies. And even, he, he always elevates everyone else's performance. And uh, he's one of those guys that like, he's a, he's a sturdy shoulders, like, you know, and I think he's, uh, I, I met him, and he's, he's like a super nice guy, super down to earth. And uh, yeah, listen, if Bruce Greenwood's in something, I'm just like, yeah, I'm sold. Sign me up. You know, he's one of those yeah, actors. Yeah, yeah. No, I 100% agree. Like, you see his name in the credits and you're just like, safe hands, like, oh, someone on this movie cared. You know, they got Bruce Greenwood, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask you more questions towards the end of it, the project you and Greenwood worked on, because it, it sounds very interesting. Uh, but, but before we get to that, Andrew, do you want to run down the actor's history? Uh, so, Bruce Greenwood was born in Randa, Quebec, in Canada, in 1957. His first role was as technician Tommy in 1979's Bear Island, which he followed up with a role as a National Guardsman in Rambo First Blood in 1982. He didn't act in film again until 1986, when he landed his first lead role as Austrian mountaineer Hermann Buhl in The Climb. He is a favourite of Canadian director Atom Egoyan, having appeared in Exotica, The Sweet Hereafter, Ararat, Devil's Knot, and The Captive. He won the Satellite Award for Best Supporting Actor for his role as JFK in 13 Days. He has acted consistently in both American blockbusters like The Core and National Treasure Book of Secrets, as well as indie films such as Meek's Cutoff and Barney's Version. His TV roles include Thomas Vale in Nowhere Man, Gil Garcetti on The People vs. O.J. Simpson, and Dr. John Hume in I Know This Much Is True. He's also done voice work, playing the role of Batman and Bruce Wayne in the widely regarded animated films Under the Red Hood and Gotham by Gaslight, as well as the series Young Justice. Alongside Adam McGoin, he is a consistent player in projects by Roger Donaldson, Mike Flanagan, Derek Siamfrance, and J.J. Abrams. Um, I think what's really great about Greenwood and makes him the sort of Swiss army knife of a character actor is that that can fit into any project is that um, he, he also just like he seems to be a guy who just likes to work and is unafraid of trying new things like I had no idea that he was the monster in Super 8 <laughs> in the mocap performance like crazy stuff but um, I think that he has this like deep smooth voice that makes him very commanding as these authority figures because uh, he often plays presidents but he also has these like light kind eyes that make him naturally sympathetic when he's playing good guys yet there's also something about him that's a little uh, slick like especially in his youth like a little too perfect which he's often deployed to play sort of sneering villains or people who are less savory than what they appeared at first and uh, it's just very interesting uh, how like an actor can just embody all these different uh, things you know you can't really pin him down um, I think Passenger 57 was his first big break, and I know, Andrew, you watched it for the show. Do you want to talk about it? It is a great movie, yeah. Um, he plays in Stuart Ramsey, who's the president of Atlantic International Airlines, which is the airline that owns the plane hijacked by Charles Rain, who's played by an insane Bruce Payne. And the sole hope of rescue lies with John Cutter, who's played by Wesley Snipes, who's an ex-cop turned airline security expert. 
So yeah, one of these kind of uh, diehard on a plane essentially, and it's essentially Wesley Snipes versus Michael Flatley because Bruce Payne has the, like, <laughs> the weird kind of Highlander hair, and uh, just imagining Wesley Snipes versus Michael Flatley will sell you on this movie regardless of uh, how good or bad it is. And uh, this is a great, like a great supporting cast like Tom Sizemore uh, from Everything in the '90s and Michael Horse from Twin Peaks and Elizabeth Hurley. Just in terms of Greenwood, we probably won't spend that long talking about this because he's kind of relegated to being part of the exposition delivery team, the, the, like the men on the ground. And it's just one of those movies where it's only about 85 minutes long and every second line is a zinger, uh, like to always bet on black. Or Bruce Greenwood even gets one where he's like, you'd think they'd put an airline hijacker on a bus or a train and not like a plane that he, can ease, that he has great experience taking over. <laughs> And I think it is just a, just one of those incredibly fun 90s movies that you you don't really see anymore. I think action cinema has changed to such a degree that uh, you know seeing Wesley Snipes fight a man who's wearing like a billowy silk shirt and has hair from like a fucking 17th century movie just wouldn't factor into a modern audience's or producer's mind at this point. I was reading somewhere, and I don't know uh, Wesley Snipes' Facebook page, or I, I think, I don't know, it could have been Michael J. White, but they're, they're, they're mooting, or they're talking about doing like Passenger 58, and I can't remember was it Michael J. White's <laughs> going to play, or Wesley Snipes is going to come back, but I was just like, oh. yeah, no way this is going to happen. Like, cause you hear, no. I, like, It's my dream like to get on a plane and to be given like Passenger 57, like the, the seat yeah. number passenger, so I was getting like, you know, fucking 23B or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should go from the uh, sounds what sounds like really fun to the, maybe the most depressing movie ever, <laughs> the sweeter yeah, after. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to the funeral? I stopped by the station a while ago and uh, stared at the bus. Almost hear the kids inside. There was a lawyer there said, uh, "Got you signed up." Is that true? Something made this happen, Billy. Mr. Stevens said he's going to find out. What are you talking about, Reese? It was an accident. Mr. Stevens said that someone put a wrong bolt on the bus. I serviced the bus, Reese, at the garage. There's nothing wrong with it. Or that the guardrail wasn't strong enough. You believe that? I've seen this movie weirdly three times. It's a movie that I, every couple of years I go back to. Uh, it's based on a novel by Russell Banks, who wrote Affliction, which we, uh, which inspired the movie of the same name that we talked about on the pod before. Uh, basically, in the small, snowy community, um, there's a bush crash uh, which kills most of the town's children, and then a lawyer, played by uh, the late Ian Holm, um, who has his own troubles, his daughter's a drug addict, he uh, visits the victim's parents in order to profit from the tragedy by you know, stirring up their anger and launching a class-action suit against anyone they can blame. And, uh, yeah, this movie was directed by Adam Egoyan, who Greenwood has worked with five times, and I think it's just like a perfect lightning in a bottle film. Like it's truly a Rorschach test of a movie where you could show it to five different people and they could have five different interpretations on you know certain characters and their decisions, and yet it still works for each one. And like every character is like layered and three dimensional. Their reactions to the tragedy all feel realistic. Um, the way the movie plays with time and flashbacks just enhances every revelation. And the score is so powerful without being intrusive. And even the kid actors, who are usually like the worst in this type of movie, like are incredible. And uh, one of them is um, a pre-famed Sarah Poli. Uh, she plays the only survivor of the crash, and she was a bit older than some of the kids who died on the bus and was babysitting them the night before and read to them the story of the Pied Piper, which is layered throughout the movie, which is another story of a village where all the children died. Like, every decision made is just correct, you know? 
yeah, just on Greenwood here, like, it's, it's maybe showing for the first time what a comedian he is, because his character is not that sort of sick, authoritative person that he'll come to be famous for embodying. Like, he plays Billy Ansel, an already widowed father whose uh, two kids die in the bus crash, and he was driving the work behind the bus and saw the crash happen and was the mechanic who serviced the vehicle before it went out. So he knows there's likely nothing wrong with it, and what happened was just, like, bad luck, like this unexplainable thing. And you get a sense, because that he's already lost his wife, that he, he's a little bit better at coping with the grief than the other parents in the community like he's the only one who doesn't feel the urge to blame someone and is very annoyed at Holmes' character for steering trouble and playing with the people in the town's feelings and so, you, so you get a scene where him and Holm you know share the screen for five minutes like two of the greatest character actors and it's just electric because Greenwood confronts him telling him to leave the town alone and during the scene Holm gets a call and he says like it's my daughter or it's the police telling me she's dead she's a drug addict and Greenwood's like, why are you telling me this? And he replies, we've all lost our children. <laughs> like, just, like, just amazing, like, character, dialogue, performance, everything is so good. And and you talked, Andrew, last week about, you know, that pain and glory quote where and, and Tony Banderas says something like, you know, he plays a director in the movie and he says, great actors don't need to cry in emotional scenes. And, you know, if the tears come, great. But what's important is that it's, it's true. Uh, I'm paraphrasing but like there's the scene where we see Greenwood looking at the bodies of all the dead children and we don't see them we just see people putting like towels over their faces and instead of like dropping to his knees and screaming at the sky like his reaction is so much more realistic and true to the character because you know he's just in silent shock like a broken man and he kind of nods and then walks away with almost sort of like a grim acceptance of what's happened which makes sense given his you know character's history and I saw, uh, I was listening to a bit of the commentary of the movie with uh, Egoyan and Banks, where they said that, like, when you can't believe in one thing, you either believe in nothing or anything, and Greenwood believes in nothing anymore, but the town believes in everything, so that puts him at a sort of clash with them. And I think what's interesting as well is, like, he's styled really cool, like, he's playing this blue-collar guy and has a handlebar mustache and a missing tooth, and apparently Greenwood actually oh, nice. lost his tooth in a tussle. <laughs> oh. IMDb says prior to the movie, and he removed his fake teeth, the tooth that he has for the role, and... Bruce Greenwood's too nice to get into a tussle. He, like, he just seems like a really nice guy, like, you know what I mean? I feel like characters when styled that way in a movie, it's often kind of coding to signify to the audience that these people are ordinary and like they like simple things like beer and football. But like this movie just gives everyone like a little bit more meat. And I like prior to the crash, like Greenwood was sleeping with this unhappily married woman in the town whose child later died on the bus, which ends their fling. But he, but he's very seductive in those like pre-crash scenes. And his character Billy is also a guitarist in his spare time and helps Sarah Polly's character who wants to be a musician make music demos like he just has this rich internal life that you might not expect when you see him at first which is very interesting and probably kind of comes when you 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 work with a director who sort of knows how to use you and like uses you repeatedly you know you they kind of cast you in in interesting ways others might not i i told my parents that we were doing bruce greenwood and told him separately and both of them were like is he the husband in double jeopardy and i (laughs) i didn't realize that double jeopardy was such an iconic movie but um (laughs) will will we hit it now they're tough in Louisiana, Libby. You shoot me, they'll give you the gas chamber. No, they won't. It's called double jeopardy. I learned a few things in prison, Nick. I could shoot you in the middle of Mardi Gras and they can't touch me. As an ex-law professor, I can assure you she is right. Where's my son? In St. Albans School in Georgia, all right? He plays Nick Parsons, the seemingly perfect husband and father who uh, 
disappears while he and his wife Libby type Ashley Judd are out in a boat in the ocean and because a lot of his blood was found on the boat Libby is tried and convicted for his murder however uh, when in prison she learns that Nick faked his death and uh, no one believes her of course but one of her friends in jail who used to be a lawyer says like there's a rule called double jeopardy like you can't be tried for the same crime twice so when you leave prison you can just walk up to Nick and shoot him in the head and they can't do anything and that kind of gives her the sort of strength to kind of like survive jail and when um she leaves like she's released on parole and tommy lee jones is her parole officer but she uh, breaks it and goes on the run across the country to try and find nick and which is essentially like the perfect premise i mean what did what did you think of it now uh, no, I think this is like pure. Like again, like they don't make movies like this anymore. Like it's like w- women in peril type movies. Like you know, kind of like say Sleep with the Enemy or stuff like that. Like uh, they do make them, but they're more TV movies say now. But this is like mm. you have great or TV actors. shows. I, I think or this guy, like Bruce Greenwood's character, plot spoilers. So he kills. He like fakes his own death. He doesn't like disappear or like go undercover or go. <laughs> He's in New Orleans. Like have a big banquet with people. Like you know what I mean? I think it's a really fun movie and it's really good and I, I like you know I'd watch it I'd watch it again next week if I had the opportunity I have to say lads Bruce Greenwood for a man of his age when he's ripped he I, he puts everyone to shame like yeah. I'm just there looking at him it's like yeah. this guy must be in his must be in his 50 he's 65 now must be like in his in yeah. his 50s then fantastic physique but uh he, <laughs> he but like he switches going from like you know he's like the sincere husband and then he's like you know so charming so charming so charming and then he's a monster and he does it like with ease like like you know there's no there's like there's there's no like he's balancing on that tread of which way he's gonna go and i think he does it like he like he's not like a, a mush, uh, mustache twirler like in Orca way he's not like he's very yeah, convincing yeah. in what he wants to do yeah no i think i think it's a great performance and like i i, I would have preferred to see more of him in it that's the thing about bruce greenwood as well like when he's in a movie he's like he's never the lead he's always like part of an ensemble or something like that but um mm. No, it's a great film, great performance from him, great performance by everybody. I was doing some research and I researched the Double Jeopardy Law and that woman that gives her legal advice is completely wrong. Like, isn't this a clean cut? It's not like, oh, you're going to be a crime, you can just go and shoot the person in the head because you deserve the time. I don't think, I don't think it's, I've got a lot of legal jargon. I was like, no, nah, man, that isn't, uh, yeah. that isn't uh, true at all. <laughs> well, yeah. typical typical 90s thriller yeah, 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 yeah. Thomas yeah. lies yeah. Yeah. it's almost a movie I would like to see remade because mm. it's a, it, even though I, I think it's really good and all the performances are on the right level and like Bruce Greenwood just in like the first few minutes of the movie he's so charming but he gives you like those little drops this character's a little too slick and then it's only as the movie goes on we realise just how like crazy he is at the moment when you just show up in like New Orleans and like previously he'd seemed like kind of waspy and preppy and he's like you know, down in the bayou, and he's doing yeah. like a New Orleans thing. You know, I do declare, like yeah. he's talking about. It's just insane. But I do wish the direction in the movie would be because you could do this and like start off like brawl and cell block ninety nine, and then it becomes like the fugitive, and then turns into like what's it called, pit in the pendulum, because it kind of becomes like a gothic horror at the end. I'd love to see a movie that just owned its kind of craziness a little bit more behind the camera, but it's mm. still like incredibly enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a good good movie. Um... Remember he's remember the guy the guy's trying to chat up the girl at the, at the opening house party and he's like this is a, a, a Picasso and Bruce Greenwood comes in and he, he kind of like this corner of his eye just like checks out the girl and he's like well actually it's a such and such and such and such from the blue period and the girl's like ooh and I'm just like it just shows that like this that little breadcrumb where like it could be an innocent conversation or this guy is like check Bruce Greenwood who's checking out the uh, uh, the girl and I just I just love that that little scene just kind of like told you so much about the character. 
Yeah, and yeah. also the scene where like the guy comes up to him at the party and he's like, "We got a big problem in Houston," and he's like, "The only problem is this martini." And kind of walks away. You're like, that's that seems like a bigger deal. You should probably go deal with that. Oh man. Um, I suppose we'll go, I'll go into thirteen days. Here we are, fifty years later. I think one of their ships uh, resists the inspection, and we shoot out its rudder and board. They shoot down one of our planes in response. So we bomb their anti-aircraft sites in response to that. They attack Berlin. So we invade Cuba. And they fire their missiles. It's a JFK movie, but it's not JFK, which is probably the problem. Um, but I think Bruce Greenwood, who plays uh, J. President John Fitzgerald Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 62 is very goodness. Um, I think the problem... I, I'm not a huge fan, Costner fan. For some reason, he has this really thick Massachusetts accent, whereas... And so does the guy that plays Bobby Kennedy, uh, Stephen Cuft, I think his name is, or Stephen Culp. Um, whereas Bruce Greenwood doesn't. He... Uh, like he's a dead ringer for JFK in this movie or JFK as we imagine him I think everyone likes to imagine JFK as a little thinner than he actually was um, and shades you know he, he, had, he had a very uh, JFK had a very like kind of gerbil cheeks or something you know he was very, a very full cheeks man um, uh, whereas like Bruce Green as you were saying he's so lean and like even going just just to go off on a little tangent, seeing him in Gerald's game, where he's in his underwear for almost the entire movie, and he's something like he's just gone sixty. He's like incredibly ripped. I wish I looked that good now. Never mind at sixty. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so Bruce Greenwood he plays Kennedy as kind of a man caught between a rock and a hard place during the Cuban Cuban Missile Crisis, which is the rock being global thermonuclear war and the hard place being like appeasement to the Soviet Union. And it's kind of stuck in the unenviable centrist position between, you know, demonstrating strength against the Russians and starting an all-out war. It's an odd movie because there's some really kind of strange style choices throughout it. Like, it'll just cut to... It'll just have random cuts to black and white every now and again and without ever, like, really explaining why. And it'll have, like, shots of, like, real people watching, like, um, like real newsreels from the time and then it'll have shots of people from the time watching fake newsreels that was made specifically for the movie it's just very strange I think I do think it's good I will say that um, and it's one of those like boardroom political thrillers and the only action that ever happens is like a, pla- a spy plane is shot down and two ships almost fire on each other in like the Bay of Cuba or whatever and like I think like I said, like Greenwood is really good as Kennedy, and uh, most because he looks so much like him, or as kind of like the heroic figure people like to imagine Kennedy was. Um, and I think him not doing the kind of Massachusetts accent, which is really hard to pull off without sounding like you're just trying to do a really bad impression of Kennedy or Mayor Quimby from The Simpsons. And, <laughs> Chowder! Is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Chowder! Yeah, which is exactly what Kevin Costner sounds like he's doing as Kenny O'Donnell, who's JFK's special advisor. And I think Stephen Culp comes off a bit better as Robert Kennedy because he looks even more like uh, Robert Kennedy than Greenwood does, than Greenwood looks like JFK. And I think Greenwood is a bit more believable because, um, you know, we all know uh, 
JFK as someone who's spoken a very like high and kind of loud register in public, whereas it's, it's a bit more believable, like, you know, yo, we chose to go to the moon, that kind of thing. Um, whereas it's more believable that he speaks in like a lower register when he's, you know, with his family or um, his political aides. I think, uh, like, you, are, you were right when you first described him as kind of speaking in this kind of low commanding almost comforting tone Stephen that, and it makes him perfect for like a good guy president like he is in uh, in this or I can't remember National Treasure Book of Secrets but I presume he's a good guy in that probably wasn't much room room for any anything beyond Nicolas Cage's crazy <laughs> <Yeah. than that. laughs> um, there's not many memorable lines or snappy kind of one-liners or anything at all and like there's a bit where there's maybe one bit where um, Kennedy uh, like he gets handed like a memo that they've intercepted from the Russians, and it says and the translator said it looked like some, it was written under great someone under great duress, and he's like, well, at least we know we're not alone, and you know that's good, but it's, it'd be better in the hands of someone like uh, Aaron Sorkin or anyone that is that has been re- writing these kind of movies and TV shows mm. for their entire life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, will we talk about Capote? Yeah. So in this movie, like Philip Seymour Hoffman, he plays a legendary writer, Truman Capote, and in 1959, after a family is killed in Kansas, Capote decides to visit the area and cover the story to write a feature in The New Yorker, and while he's there, the killers are caught, and one of whom's remorse and emotional sincerity and life story compels Capote to go, like, this isn't a feature, this is a book, which ends up being In Cold Blood, which was one of the first, or maybe even the first, uh, non-fiction novel. But in, like, over the six years writing the book, like, it took an, a, a big emotional toll on Capote. And, um, yeah, the film was directed by Bennett Miller and written by Dan Futterman, who both later worked on Foxcatcher. And I, I think the movies share a kinship in that they both have this kind of chilly, gloomy air. They both are about the intersection between polite society and sensationalist crime. They are both character studies. So if, I think if you did Foxcatcher, you'd probably uh, like this. On Greenwood, he plays Capote's uh, partner, Jack Dunphy, who is a novelist and playwright, and He's quite good in the role, even if I think he's a little bit underserved, because a lot of the movie is Capote being away from him and covering the murders, but you just get, like, one or two nice moments. Um, There's a part where Capote and his best friend Harper Lee are out in Kansas doing research for the book, and Lee gets the news To Kill a Mockingbird is going to be published, and they tell him and over the phone he's like oh that's great i'm so delighted and you can tell he's a little envious because he's a writer too and he's struggling while he's writing though that he is happy for harper and like mm. i think while more fully sad like the movie is quite funny at times just because capote was very witty and in that call with greenwood he just mounts jealous over at harper <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny and um i do think though sometimes on this podcast we'll say like oh I wish this actor had more to do in this movie but the film doesn't really need it it's just that we like that actor but I, I do yeah. think that if Greenwood was in this more it would help the film because reportedly the guy he's based on was Capote's opposite and you know while Capote was very outgoing he liked solitude and you get that impression in the movie but you don't really know what attracted them to each other and in the few scenes they do share in the film you are asking yourself questions like was it like a partnership of the minds like did they find each other attractive did they really love each other and I do wonder how much of that is intentional and reflective of real life or how much of it is like shying away from having two gay characters kiss on screen but um, I think aside from that even like the second half of the film where we're seeing Capote struggle in separating his work in Kansas with his personal life in New York I think that stuff would hit a lot harder if we'd gotten a better sense of Capote's life with uh, Dunphy before and uh, and I think because Hoffman is so good that it is somewhat sad to see Capote lose his spark but I do think the film's first half chronicling the investigation into the killings is a lot sharper and stronger but um, it is good though I'd recommend it do you want to talk about the Bruce Bruce playing Bruce in those Batman 
animated movies. Oh yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so he uh, he plays um, Batman in two feature length uh, kind of animated movies: Batman Under the Red Hood and Batman Gotham by Gaslight. And he plays him in uh, the Young Justice series. And there's like an interactive movie that's a sequel to Under the Red Hood that was released this year, which I haven't. I've only seen Under the Red Hood, but they're all meant to be very good. And he plays Batman, Bruce Wayne, you know, Gotham City's resident billionaire playboy and Cape Crusader. Um, but in Under the Red Hood, um, the second Robin has been killed by the Joker uh, in somewhere in Bosnia or Sarajevo or something like that. And the mo- mo- majority of the movie takes place five years after the murder, where Batman is still in mourning um, after Jason Todd, who's Robin, uh, uh, after his death. And um, he's Batman is kind of rattled by the appearance of uh, a villain called uh, Red Hood, who's kind of a new, more brutal vigilante kills criminals whereas Batman doesn't and he's after after the Joker and seems to know a lot about Batman's uh, secret identity and his techniques it's a it's a voice that's nice to listen to it's kind of like you know usually kind of quite calm and collected and uh, commanding and comforting in its own way uh, but here it's like he it's quite quite a lot sharper it's kind of like he's been you know maybe gargling gravel in preparation for this kind of thing and I think which is kind of necessary because the most famous kind of uh, voice actor to play Batman is a guy called Kevin Conroy, um, who's always played Batman as a bit more noble and emotionally open. And the Joker, the Joker that was always opposite of him was played by Luke Skywalker himself, Mark Hamill, who was all, who was like very manic. And John DiMaggio plays the Joker in Under the Red Hood, who is uh, he's a lot more he's a lot rougher and he's uh, a bit more you know. Uh, He's more he's more able to go toe to toe with Batman and the Red Hood, so he's a bit more macho. And I think Greenwood's Batman is a lot more closed off, uh, even to those closest, especially to those closest to him, like uh, the first Robin and his butler Alfred. And I think I think it's a very good movie and is rightfully kind of acclaimed for uh, you know its animation and its performances. I think it could benefit from a slightly longer running time. You know, it could always expand more on um, Batman's relationship with. Uh, Jason Todd, the Red Hood, and the Joker himself, because I think that's kind of as you know as tragic as the dynamic is between Batman and Red Hood. It never really compares to Batman and the Joker, which is probably one of the one of the kind of the more most elemental relationships in like the history of entertainment, regardless of how much we keep repeating on it. Um, do we want to hit? Will we hit Gerald's game because uh, yeah. I feel like we all watched it, didn't we? Yeah. I bet you think your husband will be back any minute. Try to go for help. There's no one for miles. Honey, Gerald? I'm sorry, baby. You don't get to know my name. I don't like this. I'm serious. Stop. I don't like that. Like, stop it! Play. Is this really what it takes these days? I don't know. We were so wrong. We were happy once. Where were we? Based on the Stephen King novel of the same name, uh, Karen Gugino stars as Jesse, a woman whose marriage to the t- title character, Gerald, uh, played by Bruce Greenwood, has hit a rocky patch, and they try to rekindle things by heading to a remote lake house for the weekend, and while there, Gerald has uh, the idea to do a bit of role-playing of the sexual variety, mm-hmm. and handcuffs are involved. Um, however, once Jesse is tied to the bed, we learn that Gerald wants to enact uh, a rape fantasy, and uh, Jesse's disgusted by this and kicks him away in the pair of a fight, during which Gerald has a heart attack and dies, leaving Jesse handcuffed to the bed without food or water and with no one potentially coming for weeks. And uh, Yeah, what, what are your thoughts on this now? 
I think this is a fantastic, fantastic movie. And I watched it when it first came out and it was in the background. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, Stephen King. And it's like, you know, uh, yeah, everyone involved. I, I love a good contained thriller. I love, like, Buried. I love, like, Phone Booth. I think, like, almost, like, having the Stephen King name attached to it is a good thing and a bad thing because, of course, you get, like, brand awareness Stephen King. But it's not like a Stephen King. It's not, like, it like you know okay it's like mm. it's yeah. like yeah. it's like a real world scenario like and now that i think about it like bruce greenwood's character is not a million miles away from double jeopardy character like you know it could be the same <laughs> yep. dude 100%. like maybe he survived that gunshot maybe ashley judd missed <laughs> or something like that like you know maybe it's like you know at the end of halloween where they come back the, the body's gone like he was just here <laughs> he was just here like it's so layered it's so there's so many different layers to it and there's so like everything's explored about like well, why she's reluctant to do this and like you know when she breaks the glass and that and like I don't know do you ever see um what's called you seen signs with um Mel Gibson the all these kind yeah. of things that are peppered in that you think oh that, that's just a detail and they're like oh there's they call back to it like you know what I mean it's called back mm-hmm. and like he rests the glass above the 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 thing they do this they do that then that element that like because I don't remember this when I first watched it that the man the man made of moonlight the oh, death yeah. oh, whatever yeah. I was just like. I don't remember this at all from the first time. And he's like licking her feet and all. I'm just like, what the hell is this? But um, but Bruce Greenwood is, is absolutely amazing again. Like and, and like and it's all it's like one part drama, one part like contained thriller, one part horror movie mixed together. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, this is like so and like when the woman is like chained to the bed, she keeps on having these like premonitions and seeing people talking and so on. And then like and, and Bruce Greenwood's there and he's like even though we know he's we can see his body's dead and there's a dog eating him like and he's having like there's never a sense that like oh this is just an imagination this 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 imagination uh, holds no uh, emotional weight I was like fuck man I'm into this man he's delivering those yeah. lines and she's she's buying him and even though I know he's not real and he's fake and he's I'm just like man this is just so good so so good he's sort of playing two different characters in the movie because like mm. at the beginning of the movie and I think it's the strength of the writing, but you 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 get a sense just in that like two minute scene of him in the car or the bit where she goes to feed the dog that he's very good at appearing as being this kind of protective, loving person and can crack a joke, but it, it does sort of mask that he's quite un- unempathetic and cruel person. Like the fact that like he gives her so much stick for feeding the dog and then is like, oh it's okay. Anyway, come into the house and he's kind of like taps you like, oh you're so kind. That you you already see kind of like the breadcrumbs of what he's about to do just in those like two minutes which is similar to double jeopardy like he's this like person who looks appealing from the outside but has this kind of like uh, it's all veneer like he's quite quite ugly inside but then like once he has died what you're seeing is a basically like her perception of him personified everything that was micro becomes macro and it's just him talking about you know what was wrong with their relationship what was wrong with him what was wrong with her and it's it's like theater in a way, like, and he's just like delivering this like amazing dialogue that, that, that's Stephen King that's so like it's also, novelistic, sorry, sorry. you know. It's almost like a stage play. It was almost like a stage play when we're in this room, and like because the majority of it's in a room and like a, a, talking about their relationship. It was very, it was very captivating for like such a simple premise. A, a couple who one's dead and one's alive talking about what went wrong in their relationship. Yeah, hundred percent. I know, Andrew, you're not a big fan of the look of Mike Flanagan's movies because you think they look a little flat but I I do Mm. think he finds kind of the way he shoots the room like and finds like these weird angles to put his camera and also like the flashback and the eclipse which kind of becomes like this recurring motif I think think, um, Gerald's Game is like the best shot of Mike Flanagan's movies and like I think that that same eclipse scene is incredible in its in how nightmarish it gets so quickly 
um, to, just from the lighting you know something's going to go wrong like it really adds something to the movie the most interesting parts of that movie is just her either trying to escape from the bed or talking to like a vision of herself or Bruce Greenwood or this weird bone collecting serial killer that she has uh, apparently you know imagined up which she hasn't it turns out he's real at the end of it, which yeah is the part of the movie I'm not a fan of um, but no, I love it I love it you need <laughs> the think, ca- you I, need the honest, catharsis oh. uh, to be honest I think yeah and I think there's a better way to deliver it I just think it's an odd act of self-sabotage by Stephen King and I think for Mike Flanagan to stick to it it was a mistake I think just the addition of a bone of a, of a bone collecting serial killer who says things like "You're made of moonlight" to a story as simple as "Woman escapes from handcuffs and personal demon, demons," it doesn't ruin the movie. But Jesus, it tries its best. Um, but yeah. that what I thought was beautiful the sim the uh, symbolism in it when like she gives back the ring and I was like the ring is the fucking handcuff like she was handcuffed to the bed like she was the ring she was handcuffed to Bruce Greenwood like you know the the symbolism in there because I think the movie could have been like it could have been this like uh, three stars like you know a woman has to escape it could have been very very simple very very basic but then you throw in like the childhood trauma you throw in like Bruce Greenwood's character you throw on the fucking the the, the foot licking guy you throw on all these different things <laughs> you layer 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 it up and what you come out with like is like uh, like a great performance like and like like a stage play like these two the two people in a room like how can you make that like I, I for every second I was captivated like how can you make that engaging and I, I think they I think Mike Flanagan pulled off I, th- I do I kind of like jump the shark at the end where she goes to the court case and this your man's at the yeah, end yeah that's it. Yeah, and you're talking about rich symbolism. Like I had always thought of the ring as being. Um, do you know that there's that Egyptian myth where you give, you have to give the gift to the person and it takes you through the river Styx. Oh, you know, like yeah, you, you give yeah, the ring to death. Yeah. Like I was thinking, like yeah, that. Yeah. Like it's just a very rich movie, and I think the fact that it manages to be sort of a play, but then also quite cinematic and quite beautiful, and has these images that really stick in your head. Like um, it just it manages to do a lot more than what you, and it's a lot more sensitive than what you think it's going to be based on the premise. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, but th- that that um, la- that last part where she has to like cut off her hand or fucking cut off the skin uh, of her hand because all, all the way through like it wasn't it wasn't sca- it wasn't it wasn't scary as such like it wasn't like her gross and I'm just like this is like I'm watching fucking Hostel or something like that just, yeah, like, a yeah. Saw movie I'm just like what <laughs> and then I was just like I I don't remember that part when I first watched it I was like sorry what did she do yeah. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. This is What Would You Do If? The podcast to answer all of your What Would You Do If? questions. It's Callum and Jess here, and every week we look at how we'd handle different situations. Before finding out what you should do if you're in them. So far we've looked at... What would you do if you saw someone stealing? A bear attacked you. The baby started choking. You were stuck in the lift. You can hear those episodes and loads more on headstuffpodcast.com with a new one every Monday. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. 
But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Andrew, do you want to talk about the core? So, Bruce Green plays Commander Bob Iverson, who's a NASA pilot, enlisted, one of two NASA pilots, the other being um, Rebecca Childs, uh, played by Helios Rank, who um, are enlisted to drive the drilling vessel, Virgil, uh, into the Earth's core and detonate nuclear charges in order to restart the core, which is stopped spinning due to the, you know, US government shenanigans, as usual. So, it's a movie that's essentially like the inverse of something like Sunshine. You know, instead of having to reignite the sun, they have to start the Earth's core spinning again. And, you know, space is a lot more interesting than, especially when you're heading towards the fucking sun, is a lot more interesting than uh, just watching a, a big drill burrow through the earth, even if that drill does have Stanley Tucci, Delroy Lindo, Aaron Eckhart, and Hilary Swank, and uh, Bruce Greenwood on it. Um, but, I mean, like, this movie is bullshit. I mean, <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> Like, um, like whatever about a superstorm in the day after tomorrow, or whatever about flying a massive bomb with mirrors on it into the sun and sunshine. This is total horseshit. Because they're like, it starts off. Um, they first realize that the the core stops spinning and it releases a magnetic pulse when it does, which kills everyone on Earth with a pacemaker. And then later on, all the pigeons in London go fucking feral and just start attacking tourists, and like. All that, all of this is before someone lands a space. Hillary Swank lands a spaceship in the LA River, and it's just like I remember, like the Irish comedian Dara O'Brien having this big routine about the movie Twenty Twelve, which is another movie I probably lots of kids probably love um, that were born in two thousand two, and you know having this big routine where like uh, an Indian scientist in the film the neutrinos are mutating and Dara O'Brien going losing the rag over the fact that neutrinos can't mutate. And I feel like it, a lot of other people had the same reaction when like, Aaron Eckhart turns to Richard Jenkins and says, with total seriousness, looks, him dead in the, looks this US four-star general dead in the eye and says, the core of the earth has stopped spinning. And Richard Jenkins, same seriousness, goes, how could this happen? <laughs> Fucking, I don't know. And this movie doesn't know either. But I, and it should be more enjoyable than it is um, just for all the ridiculousness of it. But... I think the fact that it's it was obvious, obviously people trying to cash in on like stuff like Armageddon or Deep Impact or uh, The Day After Tomorrow, but without these kind of um, the, without the budget for the special effects that those movies had, and it has like the special effects graphics that TG Cahar would have if you remember like any of those old crap game shows that TG Cahar used to run or like the ads that they'd have it has those like winning streak effects. visuals or... yeah winning streak visuals exactly um, except at least you know sometimes I watch winning streak and I'm like maybe there is a little gold robot I suppose going on to Greenwood in this um, this movie would have benefited had Greenwood been a, at the peak of his powers in like the 1950s and this had this movie been made then because it's a real it's a it's a movie for a man who looks like Bruce Greenwood like this this guy that looks like he could be an action figure and has to drill to the center of the earth with like Hillary Swank as the love interest 
and Aaron Eckhart is like the traitorous nerd in league with the Russians uh, who are trying to stop the Earth's core for some reason. And But unfortunately, the 2000s was the era when nerds got hot and were played by movie stars like Dennis Quaid and Will Smith, leaving poor old lantern John Bruce Greenwood in bit parts. And like he does... I think he do, he brings something to this movie that you're like, all right, I believe this guy. I'd follow this guy to the Earth's core. I don't know if I'd follow Aaron Eckhart to the Earth's <laughs> core. And like he's like, he's an astronaut, and Bruce Greenwood looks is an act, is just one of those actors who looks good in any kind of uniform. So he's always he's like in a space suit, or he's in NASA overalls, or he's in the weird kind of grey metal fucking I don't know space marine shit that they put them in for to go into the Earth's core. And like he's he's just very good at um, kind of cutting through the bullshit. A lot of like the Stanley Tucci character will give people, and uh, like he, Stanley Tucci is who plays this like this scientist Zimersky, I think his name is, who um, uh, spends a lot of time like you know, oh, imagine the book deal this will get me. Like he's on the he's on the craft, like just um, dictating notes for his future self. And there's a point where he says, uh, oh, well, my best guess is and. Hilary Swank interrupts, interrupts him and says, doesn't best guess usually mean I don't know? And uh, Sandy Tuesday spends a bit of time hemming and, hemming and hawing, and Bruce Greenwood is, well, my best guess is you don't know. And <laughs> it's one of those kind of throwaway disaster movie lines, but uh, at least Bruce Greenwood got it before he got a fucking little spike of rock in the head as is the first mm-hmm. to die, which is definitely the worst part of the movie and the point I checked out in. And he, like, he gets a great line where... Or, I won't say it's a great line. He gets... The movie's smartest line, where he says, "Being a leader isn't about ability; it's about responsibility." Which he says to um, Hilary Swank, and then it is the smartest line in a deeply, deeply dumb movie. Because a minute later, the Colosseum uh, or Rome is hit by this massive lightning storm, and the Colosseum just explodes after it's struck by lightning. Which I don't think is how electricity and stone interact. If anyone can, you know, if anyone wants to comment on iTunes or Head Stuff and let me know, uh, <laughs> go ahead. But, yeah, I mean, maybe if had I seen it when I was eight years old, I'd be like, God, the core is awesome. But it's not. Mm. Uh, do you want to hit uh, Spectral quick? No. Yeah. So Spectral is like a sci-fi, I call it almost like a sci-fi horror movie to an extent. So there's a civil war in Moldova. Well, I thought it was really strange that they didn't make up a country. So this is this is 110% Moldova has fallen into anarchy. And the, 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 this is like, it's set like 20, 30 years in the future and the UN are in there headed by America uh, to, to sort out the genocide because there's an evil dictator. And uh, they, they're, they've come across something that they can't explain. And there's like a video captured of like, you know, what appears to be a ghost and the ghost rushed through a US soldier and the US soldier dies so they fly in this uh, expert from DARPA who like and it's, it's like uh, it's like tomorrow science fiction it's like next week science fiction so, uh, so some type, type of thing yeah, they're more advanced but it's not like laser guns or anything like that so yeah. he goes in and it's a great it's a great ensemble it's like you know Max Martini uh, there's, there's lots of people like oh I know that guy oh, oh that's the guy from such and such so you have to go in to, I know um, that face. Yeah. to see what happened to these um this Delta team and it's like lads the production value is like out of this world it's like children of men it's like they're, they're driving through this like uh, blown out city in Moldova and it's, it looks it looks absolutely amazing so they come up against these these ghosts and like they can't be harmed they can't be shot 
Bruce Greenwood, should I say, is the kind of like commander in chief. He's the he's the general that sends them in, that organizes the rescue, yeah. and like we, he's like you know we've lost contact with our with our Delta team, and then like you know they cuts back to him every once in a while, like he's like we gotta get a hold of our men, like the situation's out of control. So the team go in and they kind of get uh, isolated in this town, and all these ghosts are coming from them. So. They find out that, uh, that the regime, the evil Moldovan regime, was like... It's actually really, really interesting. The, the, this regime were like... Um, uh, it's called Bose-Eisen theory. Einstein theory, where people's souls or spirits are like fucking 3D printed into like this kind of, <laughs> this kind of like element... <laughs> It, 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 it's like it's, it's actually really based on fact because I was like cause again I googled it like and uh, so it's based on fact so it's like a different type of element so you have like so you have like water air gas ice and there's like a fifth element and it's, it's like but you're like a ghost but it's like uh, yada 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 so this Moldovan yeah. evil dictator has like 3D printed people's souls into like these so they're killing all the people so and it's this thing that's like exponentially growing so if they don't get to the the center the the base the whole world will be taken over by these ghosts so um so bruce greenwood's like sending these people in and again like if bruce greenwood's asking me to do something i'm like bro you're so convincing like you know i'd serve with you no problem bruce like you know he's so charming and literally if he's just like you know the guy gets off the helicopter he's like this is the situation we have you know and he just delivers those lines that are just like with so much confidence and so much like i like and even though like even though he's not a big a big dude but i, I like you know he he has that aura Think of people like Gregory Peck. They have they have a presence about them. You know what I mean? Like mm. that's what Bruce Greenwood has. Everything he is, he has a presence. And either if it's one or two lions, or he's like you know a co-star, like he has he has an aura which like I think go shines through. And especially in this, like he he's only in maybe like five or six scenes when he gives like and most of it's just an expedition dump or like you know mm. the, the the Moldovans have the Moldovan front has fallen and we need to send troops in and so on. But um, the ghosts are overtaking the overtaking the city and they're growing. And then Bruce Greenwood's military compound has been compromised so he meets up with the Delta team and some great bits they have to like MacGyver like these special like you know they're like guns but they're made, they they shoot light and the light that they shoot disrupts the, the ghosts like mm. you have like, I'm explaining it really really bad but like check it out it's done really really well so then they have to go and, and Bruce Greenwood is just like okay we're going to have to go in to the, the compound we're going to drop in our men we're outgunned we're outnumbered like we don't have the technology and then he's like I'm going to stay here at the base you guys let me know you get on I hope everything works out like you know, away. so um, so so he's back at the base like and he's there like you know and it's like he's control center he's like leaning over some technician's shoulder how are they doing what, what's happening here like you know like we got to get through this We it's a ticking clock so anyway so they go in and of course they win and and then the end of it Bruce Greenwood is like there's a little girl that, who they find along the way like Newt and Bruce Greenwood's like somehow is like her adopted father now he's just like holding her hand at the end of the movie <laughs> it's like this happened but um yeah but it, like it's 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 pretty hard sci-fi but it's a it's a really really enjoyable like it's like it's like it's, it's like Starship Troopers kind of you can just like plug out your brain like the US yeah, Army have to, yeah. to fight ghosts who turned out to be like you know 3D printed in a Moldovan lab like you know okay, but Bruce Green was excellent yeah. It's funny when you're ex- you were explaining the concept. It sounded like it made more sense than Double Jeopardy's plot. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a lot, yeah, it's a lot easier to follow than Double Jeopardy. Yeah, you're you're actually like, you're learning a lot uh, on this podcast. Yeah, Bruce Green, like, he, he gives so much, like you know, double law, physics, yeah. science, like you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, just I wanted to raise because I I love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies. But we have talked about the pop before, so I'll just talk about it briefly. Uh, Meek's cutoff. Women are created on the principle of chaos. The chaos of creation, disorder, bringing new things into the world. Men created on the principle of destruction. 
It's like cleansing, order, and destruction. You think I'm wrong? You can tell me. Greenwood plays the title character um, in this revisionist western by Kelly Reichardt. In 1845, a group of settlers hire mountain man Stephen Meek to guide them over the Cascade Mountains, but uh, and he claims to know a shortcut, but uh, eventually they all become lost, and like the dry rock and sage is just endless, and a Native American wanderer eventually crosses their path, and they're kind of, the, emig- the immigrants are kind of torn between should they trust this guide who seems to be pretty unworthy or should they trust this person like this native american who has always been like they're, they're the enemy yeah we talked about this in a paul dano episode and when i asked to interview Larry Fessenden for the show like it came up because he's a freaking cabard right card but uh greenwood's just incredible in this movie like he manages to be so punchable yet you know somehow kind of likable because he, he's this hustler who talks a big game but doesn't really know what he's doing and also what he says about native americans is very much of the time the real joy of the movie is watching michelle williams settler go from being a wife at the mercy of kind of meek's commands and like having her life dictated by this person who she doesn't trust to becoming the new leader of the group and deciding to trust this native american and uh but it's very fun also to hear like Greenwood's meek kind of around the campfire drunk regaling the settlers with tales of like gunfights and you know bear attacks and uh, the last lines of the movie where um, this is a spoiler but um, the, it basically ends with the settlers heading into kind of an uncertain future that could both be their dreams coming true but also like a horrible death they don't know and um, yeah just Greenwood says has the final lines of the movie and they're maybe my favourite ever like he says to Williams we're all just playing our parts now this was written long before we got here I'm at your command yeah. just a fantastic final line of a movie yeah. and um, just if you should, if you haven't seen Meeks Cut Off you should watch it because Kelly Reichardt's uh, new movie First Cow is coming to a movie in May and uh, this is set around the same time period but also people should check out our other movies like uh, Wendy and Lucy and Night Moves they're uh, really fantastic Niall I wanted to ask you just uh, yeah, about your experience working with Bruce Greenwood so um, can you tell listeners about the uh, the project uh, I moved to Canada and I got a job in a I, my, I went my first interview was there like two days I got I, and uh, I interviewed it for a, like a, a an office assistant for this Jerry Bruckheimer TV show called Home um and I got it like I had no film experience I ended up getting it and then about two weeks later I got fired because uh, cause I had no experience like you know what I mean? <laughs> like I was, I was there I was there telling the lads I was like yeah Jerry Brookheimer yeah yeah oh yeah yeah like you know I'm, I'm loving it so but I, I was like a massive massive into film so I was like the first one there the last one to leave and um, so the locations manager says here let's see really nice um do you want to come work for me in uh as a production assistant like on on the film set and i was like yeah i was bummed and i was just like yeah and this is like so like uh production assistant's like a runner over here so it's like 15 hours a day so i'm there like you're there the first person there like putting out bins putting out traffic cones like and you're the last person to leave you're collecting the traffic cones you're putting away the bins and that's 15 hours a day five days a week for for like i think it was like three or four months and um yeah it was in vancouver it rained every day so the the plot of the movie, the plot of it was like so, Bruce Greenwood is like this renowned. Now this is this is two thousand sixteen. So he's like renowned psychologist or psychiatrist, and he's developed a new way to talk people into to stop being criminals. And it kind of flashed back between like him in the seventies and now his son, who's like the lead, is is a psychiatrist as well. And he's moving to an, he's moving into the the house that he he grew up in. So his dad's. His dad's in that old folks home and moved away. So when they're in there, they find all this kind of scary stuff happens and they find like a box of like old, like you know, those, old, like, you know on coils, those recorders on coils that like, you know, they record oh, the yeah, sessions yeah. with and so on. And Bruce Greenwood is like kind of like hypnotizing people, telling them they're not 
crazy and people are believing it to an extent. But then the the son has kind of picked up on this. Long story short is, and this is it keeps on flashing back between like Bruce Greenwood and the present day, and then like video footage, and then it comes to the the, the cliffhanger is that um, Bruce Greenwood was hypnotizing his family. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, so it was like. It was so. It was a, a pilot episode it was written by a guy called Aaron Coletti, who he, he did stuff on the river. Another Bruce Greenwood, uh, Steven Spielberg yeah, yeah. TV show, The River, and he's done a few. He has a few uh, nice guys. He's done lots of stuff with Marvel and so on. And I don't think people realize this, but like, so this is a pilot. So for anyone who doesn't know, a pilot is like you know we're gonna make one episode and see what the reaction is for the audience, but. There's also a process before that where, like, we're going to make this pilot and see how well it tests with execs and audiences. So guess how much this one episode of one pilot that never got, never got seen by... I didn't even see it. No one saw it. Like, it was just, like, the reviews was like, it's not a thing. That cost $5 million to make one episode and no one, wow. that, no one ever saw it. Never Jesus. been seen. Jesus. Yeah. So, yeah. So there you go there. But it had like it had a good director, like Brad Anderson directed it. Who yeah. uh, I love a lot of his movies. Yeah, no, like, like it was all it was all like t- everyone there was like I'm not saying the best of the best, but I'm saying like everyone there was like well respected. Everyone there was like the uh, like art, the DP, like all this stuff was like top of range. And um, yeah, it just didn't uh, like personally from the first episode, I was like they kind of writing themselves into a corner. Like okay, this is it's kind of like a cool premise where like you know hypnotize. What season two? Like there's oh there's another person yeah. who's been hit but like you know what's what's the next season like where are these where are these arcs like where where are we going with this, but um one of the guys who was a kid in it and he's he's at the blown up his name is um Harris Dickinson he was in a uh, beach I see beach rats and he's in the new Kingsman movie that guy is just oh, like wow. gone up and up and up and up oh, yeah. and up he's been Actually, in yeah yeah no name rings a bell and I think I know the face yeah yeah he's a, he's an English actor like super nice super nice guy super down to earth but um. But Bruce Greenwood was on it, and Bruce Greenwood was like, you know, he would maybe come in for three days a week, or he'd come in for two days, or come in now and again. Like, sets are stressful places, and they're like, but like, Bruce Greenwood, like, is this like talking to everybody? He'd be like, like, you know, and you'd be standing there, like, you know, emptying the bin, and be like, want a hand? Like, do you want a sandwich? And like, something like that. <laughs> and of course you can't say, yeah, but he's just like, so down there. So he was in, um, his scenes, he was, he was dressed up in like the 70s gear, and like, you know, the bell bottoms, and um, he had his trailer, we're in like a, we're in like a lot in, uh, in Vancouver, and, um, everyone be going back and forth and like you know and he'd be sitting there with his guitar and this is no word of a lie like such a nice guy man like you know he'd be sitting there on his guitar and he'd be like um just playing his guitar and he'd be like humming to himself and like a guy like a grip would walk by and be like hey 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 grip name a song and he'd be like the grip would be like uh i don't know back in black and bruce green would just be like back in black and this is it i'm not like everyone so i was going by one day and like you know you know trying to talk to myself and he's there like you know i'm hoping like pick me pick me bruce pick me come on so uh he's sitting there he's like hey hey you and i was like yeah how, how you doing bruce and he's like oh, where are you from and i was like I'm, I'm irish i'm from ireland all right irish name a song i was like anything by tin lizzie and he's just like the boys are back in town the boys there's no word of a line he's just like but like just having someone like that on set who was just like so down there like like makes everyone smile and so on and like every time we've seen him after that like he'd be like hey Irish hey hey Irish and all like where am I going Irish <laughs> point me in which direction like you know super super nice suit and like I always imagined that's what he'd be like in real life like you know, in Arkway and uh, yeah, yeah no super super nice super down to earth guy and uh, yeah 
Oh my god, that that paid off so well because when you were talking, you were like, sets are stressful places, and like, you know, Bruce didn't want to talk to me. <laughs> so, yeah. so the fact that he was so nice yeah, is yeah. limited here. It's a shame that they don't release more uh, pilots for Public Watch because a lot of them are directed by people who are really good yeah. and uh, See, they spend so much money on them. And I'm sure there's audiences out there who are like curious about getting yeah. to watch them. Yeah. So they do like 40, so pilot season, they make like 40 pilots a year. I think 10 of them. 10 of them go like so they make 40 but only 10 of them be shown on TV or get like one mm. season so there's 30 other movie 30 other like you know hour long episodes that like no one ever sees but uh, the reason they get like these high profile directors are and this is something I found out if you direct the first the first of a successful show you get like something in the back end you get more money or like it, you're, you're, you're like okay, yeah. almost an executive producer you, you're, it's your concept you, you set the tone for the rest of it so that's why the first episode of uh, TV shows is always someone big because they get more money than like a guy who does like three or four or, or one or whatever but Brad, Brad Anderson he's like a super super interesting dude do you ever just look at someone and you just like that guy has seen more movies read more books and like understands movie on a, a, a different fucking level to everyone else man like he just like yeah. he's so he's so intense but like not intense that like he, he can't talk to him. or like you know he's this intense that like he's he's seen absolutely everything that's happening and he's he's like four or five shots ahead of what's happening like and that's the great thing about being a production assistant was like you know you had no you had like a, your, your role was like a uh, jack of all trades so one day be empty and beans but next day be like in the in the, the director's tent in Video Village just like watching him and listening to producers talk and like oh this is what we want to do and this is what we're trying to get from the words you know going and it's like oh fuck man like you know that's what they're doing that's how I should put my stuff like you know sounds a great experience yeah amazing amazing yeah. experience well thank you for sharing the story because um, yeah it's always delightful because we we cover these people but we they're always at a distance because we never quite <laughs> we're talking yeah. about their work we never quite get to know them as people so it's good to once in a while to have people who worked with them just to reaffirm that yeah they're really great yeah, <laughs> you know really nice guy yeah, so rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Email us at iknowthefacepod at gmail.com if you have someone you'd like us to cover on the show. Follow us on Twitter at iknowthefacep1, Instagram at iknowtheface, Facebook at, at iknowthefacepod. Thanks to Charlene Fernandez and for editing and running our socials. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming Section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. Yeah, you can find me at the Headstuff Film Section too and at joe.ie. Uh, Niall, anything you'd like to plug? I know that you have three exciting sounding films uh, that you wrote on the way, right? Mr. Mayfair, The Spice of Life, and A Song to Kill For. So they're like kind of gangster movies where these three gangsters leave New York and they end up in London and they get up to all sorts of shenanigans. So we have like Amina Sante, Stephen Bauer from uh, Scarface. Amina Sante's in like, you know, Judge Dredd. We have Ken Davian who is Borat's manager. Yeah, check them out. I, I think they're out this summer somewhere, streaming somewhere. Are they part of a nice. franchise? The three movies are connected. Yeah, the, so there's five movies all together. So they they film them all. Or they film some of them back to back, and they're all connected. So it's about Amina Sante's character is a, a a New York gangster, and he ends up moving to London, and he's a lot about town. And his two friends, Stephen Bauer and Ken Davian, they come over from New York, and they they're kind of hanging out, and they got up all sorts of shenanigans, all sort of adventures, and all sorts. It's a fun film. Like it's not too, it's like it's not Goodfellas, you know. Like it's a nice fun yeah. movie, like you know. But um, yeah, it was great. Uh, the director is uh, a chap named Philippe Martinez, and he's done stuff with like Christian Bale, like Wesley Snipes, fucking Van Damme. He's 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 done he's done it all. So uh, it was cool working with the working with them, and um, a great experience. And um, I'm doing a TV show at the moment for a, a US network, but. I can't tell you about, but that should be out in, in fall. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, I have two movies. I'm producing a movie in Vancouver this year. It's like a it's like a cabin in the woods, 
type movie, Ooh. but it, yeah, it, but it's very, it has a good hook. But we watched very, that recently. We rewatched that recently. Yeah, so this is, you're right up my alley here now. Yeah, <laughs> so it's like a Cabin in the Woods type thing, but it's 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 done really well, and there's like a different angle to it and a slant to it. So it, it, it ties in a lot of like a uh, harp back to like stuff like you know John Carpenter and oh, nice. uh, Wes Craven. So it's not too serious. You're hitting not, every note. Yeah, oh, check, check it out. <laughs> but it's gonna be a lot of fun. It's it's called the Smoke, and um, but it's it's like I would compare it to like say Shaun of the Dead, but it's like fifty percent Shaun of the Dead. Like it's it's way more set in the real world than than um, cool, yeah. than Shaun of the Dead. Well, good luck in the future. And um, just before I go, I just want to say, you know, please, if you like our show and you listen to it all the time, consider signing up to Headstuff Plus and donating five euro a month, and you'll unlock special bonus episodes of the show. Um, yeah, see you later, Cinephiles. Bye bye. Thanks very much, lads. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.